2: Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to go over our usual shout out to all of our listeners. It is because of you that we are one of the biggest podcasts in Ohio. You have made us number two on Evergreen Network as well as number two on killerpodcasts.com. With your help, I know we can get to number one. All you have to do is just keep doing what you're already doing, keep sharing our podcasts with friends and family and keep supporting us on patreon.com slash Ohio mysteries. That's P A T R E O N.com slash Ohio mysteries. Please also leave us feedback on our episodes. If you have any take on any episode, email us at feedback at Ohio mysteries.com. And who knows you might hear your feedback on an upcoming podcast. So, Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi, everybody. It's May 6, 1937, and the Hindenburg... A German passenger airship the size of a football field is arriving at the Naval Air Station in Lakehurst, New Jersey. In the air, 97 people, mostly crew, but also 36 passengers who have made the cross-Atlantic journey on the luxury liner without incident. On the ground, more than 100 Navy men and civilians waiting to tether the dirigible to its mooring mast. Also, dozens of family members eager to be reunited with their loved ones, and reporters filming the huge Zeppelin as it slices smoothly through the dark sky. Among them is radio man Herbert Morrison, who describes every moment of the Hindenburg's approach as a newsreel cameraman captures the video. They have no way of knowing they are about to record one of the most iconic disasters in American history. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, blacked up a
0: little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's it bursting into flash, Get it started! Get this it started! It's rising! It's rising! It's crazy. terrible. Oh, my, get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the mooring fast, and all the folks believe that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's like 20, oh, Oh, four or 500 feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. And the smoke and the flames now, and the flame is rising to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All oh, the humanity and all the just screaming around here. I don't do it. <laughs> I can't even talk to people, and friends around there, it's a, it's a, uh, oh, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen, honestly, it's just laying down, a massive smoking wreckage, and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and screaming, lady, I, I'm sorry, honestly, I, I can hardly breathe, I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it, <laughs> Charlie, that's terrible. I said, I, listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost of voices It's the worst thing I've ever witnessed.
1: Thirty-six people will die in that fiery inferno. Thirteen passengers, 22 crew, and one worker on the ground. But not Clifford Osborne. The Ohio native will walk away, dazed, with seemingly superficial injuries, and no memory of how he got from the airship to the ground. Yet, when Osmond died suddenly, a few years later, on another business trip, there was good reason to ask, had the Hindenburg claimed its 37th victim? This is Clifford's story. Clifford Leroy Osben was born to Cora and Robert Osben in Nevada, Ohio. That's a village in Wyandotte County in the north-central part of the state. He had three sisters and a brother, and they spent their school years in the city of Marion, next door in Marion County. Clifford grew into a friendly, gregarious young man with movie star good looks. He went to Ball State Teachers College in Indiana, then Purdue University, where he graduated with degrees in journalism and agriculture. When he was released into the world in 1923, he grabbed a job with a farm equipment company in South Bend, Indiana. Life moved quickly for Clifford over the next five years. He got married to Irene Miller, an artist in the company's ad department, They added their first daughter, Jean, to the family, and when his company merged with three others into the Oliver Farm Equipment Company, Clifford moved his family to Chicago to work in their sales office. It didn't take long for him to become head of export sales, a job that had him traveling the world. It suited his extroverted personality, and he learned to speak several languages fluently always waiting for his return, was his wife and now three daughters. In addition to Jean, they had Suzanne and Sally. They all looked forward to the gifts that Clifford would bring them, Spanish costumes from Mexico and other souvenirs of distant lands. Clifford doted on his daughters. When the Osbonds hosted dinner parties, the girls were always included and often seated next to their dad. In the 1930s, air travel was still very young, and flying came with risks. There were no commercial flights to Europe yet, but Pan American Airways did put together routes through Central and South America and the Caribbean, and Clifford took advantage of them. He loved to fly, and it was much faster than an old-fashioned steamship. Clifford's first brush with death came during a trip to Argentina in 1936. On the way to Buenos Aires, a Pan-American seaplane he was on was forced to make a landing on the ocean near Puerto Rico. Everyone survived, and they were rescued by a boat. But then, as the boat made its way to the harbor, its engine exploded. Two passengers were seriously injured in the fire. Everyone put on life jackets and bobbed in the water until they could be rescued a second time. Clifford was unscathed. The next year, Clifford sailed to Europe for a business trip that kept him away for three months. He was really looking forward to getting back home when he had the opportunity to book passage on the Hindenburg. It was getting ready to make its first trip to North America, leaving the evening of May 3rd, 1937. He didn't tell his wife he was coming home on the historic flight. She only knew to expect him in Chicago in time for Mother's Day on May 9th and for the fourth birthday of his youngest daughter, Sally. But he did send his sister, Hattie, a postcard from Copenhagen and mentioned he'd be coming home on a Zeppelin. By 1937, Americans had already given up on the idea of using dirigibles for commercial travel. There had been too many accidents in the United States. They were focused on improving airplanes. And two years from now, they would finally make the first commercial flight across the Atlantic. But Germany had always stayed with its lighter-than-air program. The Zeppelin Company had flown more than a million miles without a passenger fatality. The Hindenburg, the star of the German fleet, had crossed the Atlantic 18 times without incident. No doubt, the 36 passengers and 61 crew boarding the ship that day felt perfectly safe. The Hindenburg staterooms were designed like train compartments, and there was a promenade lounge dining room, and huge windows so everyone could watch the scenery below. On the Hindenburg, as it sailed over the Atlantic, a passenger named Joseph Spa took some home movies of the trip. Spa was an acrobat on his way to perform in New York City. The video he took captured Clifford and other passengers as they looked out the window at the icebergs floating in the North Atlantic. Clifford turned and looked directly into the camera. Spa would survive the coming crash, as did this spool of film. Now on May the 6th, the Hindenburg arrived at Lakehurst, New Jersey. A thunderstorm delayed the landing, and the airship spent six hours cruising over New York City waiting for it to pass. At 7.21 p.m., it was ready to dock. The motors idled. 39-year-old Clifford put on his hat and his coat, then looked out the observation windows at the ground crew who were grabbing the landing lines to tether the ship. The ground crew looked up and waved at the passengers, illuminated by the lights inside. The passengers waved back. Suddenly, the ship burst into flames. The envelope that covered the cigar-shaped form dissolved like cotton candy hitting water, and it fell quickly from the sky. Clifford recalled hanging on to steel girders that turned from red to yellow to blue as they heated beneath his hands. But the next thing he knew, he was standing on the airstrip with no memory of how he'd gotten there. "'It had taken just 34 seconds from that first flame "'to the time the ship's charred skeleton rested on the ground. "'I didn't jump,' he later said. "'I know I didn't jump. "'I didn't know what happened. "'I can't describe it. "'I seemed to be dead and alive at the same time.' "'When Clifford came to his senses, "'he was 30 feet from the beams and steel wires.' and watched numbly as the rest of the ship burned to cinders. Rescuers reached Clifford. His mouth was bleeding as if he had been punched, and he had burns on his hands, but otherwise he seemed okay. He was taken to Paul Kimball Hospital in nearby Lakewood. Clifford's family in Ohio, Indiana, and Chicago, who by now had guessed that the zeppelin he was on was the Hindenburg, scanned news reports of the tragedy, looking for his name. In some reports, he was listed among the survivors. In others, he was listed among the missing or dead. Irene and her three girls waited anxiously at their home in Park Ridge, Illinois, until they received a telegram from Clifford himself, who quipped, "'Reports of my death are greatly exaggerated.'" Irene took a train to New Jersey the very next morning, telling reporters, I'm so happy, so terribly happy that he was saved. She joined her husband at the hospital, and all seemed well. Clifford's face and hands were swathed in bandages, but the injuries seemed superficial. They were confident he'd be released in a couple of days. But by that weekend, Clifford was struggling, it became clear something more was going on. He had absorbed a significant amount of thick, greasy fumes that came from burning fuel oil tanks. The smoke inhalation was turning his skin yellow with jaundice, and complications developed affecting his heart and kidneys. Clifford was given blood transfusions and placed in an oxygen tent. When reporters visited him in the hospital, he greeted them with characteristic cheerfulness. On May the 10th, a week after the crash, he was still expecting to go home any day, but it would take a full month before he was released. Before he returned to Chicago, Irene warned their three girls that their daddy was still heavily bandaged and pleaded with them not to be frightened, that if they reacted harshly, he would be heartbroken. When it came time for four-year-old Sally to greet him, she ran and threw her arms around him, gently admonishing him, Daddy, you weren't here for my birthday. Clifford knew something in him had permanently changed. He noticed he often had to slow down and catch his breath, even when simply talking. His burned hands continued to pain him, and he wore light gloves to cover the scars for many months. He had also developed a fear of fire. But in time, he returned to work and the travel it required. Because so much of his time was spent in Central and South America, he started thinking about moving his family to Argentina. In 1941, this was four years after the Hindenburg disaster, he took an extended business trip south. His last stop before returning home was in Cuba. But while he was there, he became ill. He was admitted to a hospital in Havana, and staff called his wife, Irene, and told her to come. It was bad. Irene left Chicago immediately, but twice an airplane that was to take her closer to Clifford was canceled because of mechanical problems. By the time Irene finally reached Havana, it was too late. On April 14, 1941, Clifford Osborne died at the age of 43. Reports said he had a cerebral hemorrhage and complications related to chronic nephritis, a kidney ailment. His family was convinced his condition was the result of the Hindenburg tragedy. By the time Clifford died, the idea of passenger dirigibles was also dead. The Hindenburg, captured on film for everyone to witness, had shaken the industry, and the era of the magnificent ships was over. The cause of the fire is also a mystery. It's been debated for decades and never explained to everyone's satisfaction. It could have been an accidental spark. But complicating things was the fact that Adolf Hitler was already in power in Germany. His persecution of Jews was well underway, and threats had been made against the Hindenburg both in the U.S. and in Europe. It's actually the reason there were only 36 passengers on board a ship that could accommodate three times as many. People had the jitters. Whether the ship was ignited by accident or deliberately, all scenarios pointed to its use of hydrogen gas as its Achilles heel. Hydrogen, mixed with oxygen from the air, was the most explosive gas known. The crew wore cotton uniforms without buttons and shoes with crepe soles. Passengers were limited to what they could carry on board. The smallest spark could set it off. Just as a side note, I found a few other Ohio-related footnotes to Clifford's story. His sister, Mrs. Finley Fullerton, was living in Cuyahoga Falls at the time of the disaster and gave interviews about her brother. The company Clifford worked for was later purchased by the White Motor Corp of Cleveland in 1960. And I learned by the 1990s, one of Clifford's granddaughter, Karen Gilbert, had settled in Cincinnati. I want to give credit to some of the information in this episode to a website page at facesofthehindenburg.blogspot.com. Its author, Patrick B. Russell, has done little biographies of just about everybody who was on board that ship. So it's a great site to visit if you want to learn more.
2: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode Hop on over to Ohio Mysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well.
1: This is the story of The One.